The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We are in week four of our series in Titus. We've got uh, two more weeks to go after today. And uh, this, this is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to uh, a, a preacher, a, a pastor in the island of Crete called, his name is Titus. And there was a bunch of house churches in the island of Crete uh, that Titus was overseeing. And Paul wrote this letter because he heard a whole lot of, um, he heard a whole lot of uh, basically negative news that there were some false teachers who, had, who were in this church and they were, they were teaching that you could be saved, uh, that, you need to, that in order to be saved, you needed to, Jesus Christ wasn't enough, you needed to add other things um, you need to be circumcised and, and other things that Paul refers to as Jewish myths. You need to add them to your catalogue of things that you do in order to be saved. And so Paul writes this to Titus and he says, writes this letter to Titus and he says, No way. No way. It is by the grace of God alone. It is by faith in, in Jesus Christ that we are saved. And not only that, it is by faith in Christ that we are also sanctified. It's the grace of Jesus that sanctifies us. And these people, they were looking to... Uh, it it, it kind of looked like they were really after godliness and piety, but, but in actual fact, they were trying to bypass the grace of God and take matters into their own hands and really wanted to sideline Jesus to, to establish their own salvation. As we begin this as well... Um, <clears throat> Many of you will uh, be aware of the sad news of the passing of Tim Keller on Friday. Now, some of you um, might not know who Tim Keller was. Tim Keller uh, is a preacher in New York, a hero of the faith for me, um, uh, an absolute um, giant in theology and in pastoral ministry. And it's really, I've been really saddened um, about this. I mean, he's been, he's been fighting pancreatic cancer for the last three years. And um, I was actually listening to a sermon of his on Friday before I knew that he had passed away, before he passed away, I think. Um, uh, and he expressed in the sermon, he was talking about Abraham and, and Sarah and uh, in the series, and, and he just made this comment that just really stuck with me, that God is both infinite and intimate. God is both infinite and intimate. And I thought to myself, that's exactly what this passage that we're looking at today tells us about Jesus, about God, that he is infinite, the infinite God of the universe, infinite in all possible ways, infinite in glory, infinite in holiness, infinite in might and strength and power, and intimate, the God who draws close. And he came close to us in his son, Jesus, and he, he bore our sins so that we could stay close to him without being destroyed by his holiness, without being incinerated by the white-hot flame of his glory. And this is what this passage is going to teach us this morning, that God is infinite, absolutely other than, than, than anything else that we have experienced. And he's intimate. He is closer than anybody has ever been to us. So let me read this passage for you, and then we'll spend some time in prayer. He says, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's let's spend some time in prayer. Almighty, gracious Father, since our salvation wholly and completely depends on a true understanding of your holy word. Grant, Lord, this morning that our hearts would be freed from worldly affairs. That our hearts would be freed from the entanglements of our lives, Lord. And instead, may we hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith so that we can rightly discern your grace towards us, your gracious will for us, we might cherish your grace and live by it with every part of our lives. And we pray, Lord, that we would do this to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> We're all familiar with, this, with the scene in the, in the movies of the hero bursting in to save the day. Uh, whether it's you know, a Marvel movie or DC movie or whatever, we're all familiar with the idea of, of people in a helpless situation, people that there's no way out, and then the hero bursts in and saves the day. And, and one of my favorites of these is from the very first Iron Man movie um, with Robert Downey Jr., where uh, Robert Downey Jr., Iron Man, Tony Stark, he's, uh, he's watching the news, he's, he's, been, he's managed to free himself, he's gotten out of captivity in, this, um, in, in, in the cave in the Middle East where he was, and uh, he's watching the news and he's built his Iron Man suit, he's had a bit of fun with it, but now it gets kind of real because he sees on the news the exact same baddies who captured him and they were in some small town and they were causing havoc and they were separating families and, and it, was a, it was a horrible time and the news reporter was saying, you know, these people are, are totally on their own, who's going to save them? And so... Tony Stark puts on his Iron Man suit and he flies over and then the scene cuts to this cold kind of wintry place and people are being, husbands and wives are being separated, children being pulled away from their, their, their parents and then, uh, then all of a sudden Iron Man bursts into the scene. Iron Man appears and he lands and he makes easy work of these baddies and it's like this cool moment where like, wow, look how powerful he is. The hero has appeared. And that's what we've got to have in our minds when we read this first sentence, for the grace of God has appeared. The emphasis in that sentence is on this word appear. Paul wants us to pay attention to it, so he actually lugs this word appear right to the front of the sentence. It's the same kind of word that was used in Greek literature of the time to express a hero bursting into the scene to save people who are in some kind of helpless scenario. And this is the reality of Jesus entering our world. We were helpless in our sin. And then Jesus showed up. Grace appeared. 
That word up here is actually the same word that was used by Zechariah, the, the priest, um, who was actually Jesus' uncle, John the Baptist's father. And at the birth of his son, um, at the miraculous birth of his son, John the Baptist, Zechariah prophesies over his son, and he says this in Luke 1, 76. He says, A new child will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And that word in verse 79, to shine, is that same word, appear. That the gospel will appear. It will shine in the darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the helpless situation that we were in. We lived in darkness and the shadow of death. And it might not seem like that to us when we look around those in our life who don't know Jesus, especially as we live here on the Sunshine Coast and life generally for a lot of people is quite wonderful. But this is our spiritual reality, that we were blind in our sins and we were destined for eternal punishment because of our sins. But then, as Paul says, the grace of God appeared. Grace has appeared. You see, grace is not some abstract theory. Grace is, uh, the grace of God and the person of Jesus Christ are so tightly intermingled and inseparably joined together that we cannot separate the two. Grace is more than just a thought. It's more than just an action. It's more than just a word. It's more than just a force. Grace is a person. Grace is our hero, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, our hero, burst into our helpless scene and he saved us. This is why Paul says that grace appeared, Jesus appeared bringing salvation. Salvation, as we know, it means to save. And we might just breeze past a word like that, but it actually means to save. And embedded into this word is the fact that we need to be saved. We need to be saved from our sins. We, we, before we, we were believers in Christ, we were destined for eternal punishment, but we needed to be saved from our sins. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I bet that a, a major part of the reason why you don't trust in Jesus is because you don't believe that you need to be saved. You're not convinced about that yet. You think, no, I'm, I'm actually pretty good. That was, that was my story. I was a good moral kid. I was an expert in, on keeping myself just out of reach of the need to be saved, or so I thought. I was fine, or so I thought. But the reality of our sin is that we need to be saved. You see, sin is far more than just the things that we think, or the things that we say, or the things that we do. Sin is a, a posture that is angled against the God of the universe. Sin is an attitude that says, I deserve to be on the throne of the universe. I'm the one who should be in charge. I am the Lord of my own life, not someone else. Sin is selfishness unbridled. And sin is at the root of every single problem that you and I have ever faced. 
We are flooded with sin and its effects, and we need to be saved. We need this salvation. And Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, this doesn't mean that all are saved or that all will be saved, but rather it's telling us that this salvation of Jesus Christ is open to all. It's an invitation to all people to put your faith in Jesus Christ. The offer of salvation is not an offer only to those who show some kind of promise or those who show some kind of potential in their life or those who are naturally inclined towards it. It is salvation for all people because all people need to be saved from their sins. These words, all people, they prevent us from making a couple of massive mistakes. One mistake is to think that not everyone needs to be saved. The other mistake is to think that only good people can be saved. But both of those positions are utterly wrong. Everyone needs to be saved since all have sinned. And the only way that we can be saved is by turning to Jesus and receiving his salvation and saying yes to him. Some of us in this room have not said yes to Jesus. Not in our hearts. We have the invitation right now to say yes to Jesus. But the grace of God, it not only saves us from our sin, it sanctifies us towards a life of obedience to God. This is what is meant in verse 12 where Paul says that the grace appeared and is instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust. The problem that Titus was facing in this church was that these people had entered the church and they were trying to, they were teaching that you could deal with your godlessness and with your worldly lusts without grace. Paul tells them, you'll never do it. You need grace. You don't have enough of what it takes. You don't have enough self-motivation. You can't do it without the grace of God. And these words, godlessness and worldly lusts, these are the external and the internal results of sin in our lives. Godlessness refers to our external sinful life. Worldly lusts refers to the internal thoughts and meditations of our hearts that are rebellious against God. And it's perhaps most potent, sin is perhaps most potent when it it is within our hearts and we think that no one can see it. We need to guard against the thoughts of our minds and not fall under the ridiculous lie that we can somehow contain sin within our own hearts. It always, always, always finds its way out. Godlessness and worldly lusts need to be denied and we need to say no to them. Our sin needs to be dealt with. So often we, we simplify sin to being, being something no more than just the things that we do and we think, oh, what goes on in my mind, what goes on in, our heart, in my heart, that's my business, that's not the Lord's. No, no, the Bible disagrees with that actually. We need to be saved from our internal sin as well. How do we do this? Do we just have to try harder? Do we just have to be more disciplined? Well, I think there's, there's room for that, but, but there's something else that comes before that. It has to come before that. It's God's grace that instructs us to deny. See how those words play out in that sentence. It's his grace that has appeared that is instructing us to deny. The grace of God personified in Jesus Christ, that's our teacher. 
That's our instructor in how to deny the irreverent and worldly thoughts and actions of our lives. You see, the cross of Jesus has not only saved us, but it's the source of how we grow in holiness. When we're struggling in sin, where we're struggling in guilt and shame, and we're, 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 we're thinking about the things that we just... It's just this sin that keeps popping its head up. Our first port of call is to go back to the cross of Jesus, is to go to the gospel. The reason why is because when we put our faith in Jesus, our identity changes. We go from being a slave to sin to becoming a child of God. And so by remembering the gospel that made that change, the grace of Jesus Christ that caused that change in our hearts, we're remembering that sin no longer has any kind of jurisdiction over me. Sin is not in charge anymore. I don't have to do what sin says anymore. I have a new king. I have a new savior. His name is Jesus, and I obey him. I don't have to do what sin says anymore. One of the absolute worst, if not the worst characters in any fictional movie or TV show that I've ever seen is Norman Price from Fireman Sam. Anybody with me on that? Can I get an amen on that? If you've ever watched Fireman Sam, Norman Price is just the worst. I, like, I just can't handle him. Get a donor. Okay, maybe I'm... Okay, it's okay. He's just... Norman Price, Norman Price gets himself into trouble every single week. Every single week he gets himself into some kind of problem. And I think maybe if there's a character that's as bad as him, it's his mother that totally enables his behavior. But every single week he gets himself into dramas, he gets himself into trouble, and it's up to the fire department of Ponty Pandy to save him. And it costs a whole lot of tax dollars, and that's not really mentioned in Fireman Sam. But like, like people risk their lives every single week. It's a huge cost in the town to keep saving Norman Price from his foolish ways. And he, it's, they save him, and then next week he just needs to be rescued again. What Norman doesn't understand is that there is a cost to saving him, and that cost is high. And what we need to understand is that there was a great cost to our salvation, and that cost was high. And that cost, though, was not made begrudgingly. It was made because of love. It was God pouring his love out for us in the death of his son on our behalf and making sinners into saints, bringing them into his family. We are instructed by grace to deny anything in us that rebels against God because it was grace that saved us from our rebellion against God. By pointing us to his personal and costly sacrifice of his life and the separation from the Father that Jesus endured for our sake, Jesus instructs us to deny godlessness and deny worldly passions, worldly lusts. Sometimes we think of grace as free ticket to do whatever we want. To just kind of go, okay, I can do whatever I want. God's going to forgive me. I can live however I want. That's what Norman Price would do. Don't be like Norman. We are called to deny the inward and the outward compulsions of sin. Friends, there are some TV shows that we shouldn't watch. Fine and Sand's fine. You can watch that. But there are some movies that we shouldn't watch. There are some things that we should not be listening to. There are some behaviors and some actions and some thoughts in our minds that we should not be entertaining. We might think it's okay, but we, we need to deny those things. 
There are words that we should not be using. There are things that we should not be putting into our bodies. Why? Is this because this is the club rules? Is this just because that's what's expected? No, it's because of grace that tells us that we are, that's not who we are anymore. Grace says, no, don't go down that path again. This is not who you are. You were bought at a price. That might be who you used to be, but this is not who we are anymore. And so one thing that we could ask God right now is just, Lord, is there something that I should be denying that I haven't been denying? Whether it's an inward thing or an outward thing, is there something that I'm doing or language that I'm using or things that I'm watching or, or things that I'm participating in that I just should not be doing? Or, or, or is there sinful tracks in my heart that need to be stopped right there? And I think can we, if we can do something a little bit different this morning, can we spend a moment right now in prayer? with our eyes closed, just asking God this question. Would you join me? Let's spend a moment in our, on our own asking this question. Lord, is there something that I should be saying no to in my outer and my inner life? Let's just do that for a moment. Lord, where there is deception and sinful activity in our hearts and in our minds and our lives, would you by your spirit point that out? Show us where we need to grow in obedience, Lord. Amen. See, grace not only instructs us to say no, but it also instructs us to live yes, to, to live in a, a sensible, righteous, and godly way, Paul says. <clears throat> Commentators point out that these words, sensible, righteous, and godly way, these are the antithesis of godlessness and worldly lusts. The grace of God points us to living this way because this honors the Lord and we are glad to do so. This isn't an automatic thing that our, once we start believing that our thoughts and actions are automatically lined up with, with the glory of God. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful it was that we just became a Christian and then all those sinful thoughts and all, those, all that sin just goes away, we're never tempted again? That would be so good, right? But that's not how this works. Salvation plants a seed in our heart that causes us to want to honor God in our lives. So what Paul says later on, that we become eager to do good works. And so we look forward to opportunities to do so. But Paul is not naive about the difficulty of living this way. We, we know this because... He says that we are called to live this way in what he refers to as the thanks man, what he refers to as the present age. Now this 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 term, the this present age, it's a really loaded term. Because he's not just talking about here and now, he's not talking about right now. He's, he's talking about the fact that we live in a moment that is suspended between two critical moments of history. The first critical moment, the first critical point of history is referred to back in verse 11 with this word appear, where Paul says that the grace of God has appeared. It's something that's taken place in the past. It, we can look back on it. It's a historical event that we can see. That it's the, it's the uh, entering of God into the world. It's the first coming of Jesus Christ. The second critical point of history is referred to here in verse 13 with the repetition of this word appeared. Where it says that while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is something that we are looking forward to, that it is in the future that we're waiting for. 
So we have the appearing of grace and the appearing of glory. And, and Paul says that we are currently uh, live, residing between these two critical points of history. Grace appeared at the first advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ to earth. But there's going to be a second advent, a second coming of Jesus. But he's not going to come in grace like he did the first time. This time he's going to come in glory. We've seen his grace and now we wait for his glory. The glorification of Jesus is something that we as Christians should be looking forward to. It's this great day of vindication where Jesus will appear and he will come in unfiltered glory and the whole world will know that he is God. This is how God is infinite. He will bring his judgment upon those who have rejected him and those who have opted to pay for their sins themselves. Those who have said, no, no, I don't need Jesus Christ. I can handle myself. I can do my own thing. I, I, I can pay for this. And those people on that day are going to be fine. They're going to be found utterly short of the right amount of payment for their sins. But for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, who pays our debts, who pays for, pays for our trespasses, he pays the debt of our sin, we will be found to be debt-free, guilt-free, sin-free, and we will see Jesus in unfiltered glory, and it will be wonderful. We'll see his beautiful, glorified face in front of ours, and everything will be wonderful. This is why Paul also calls this, this appearing of glory our blessed hope. It's something that we look forward to and that we long for. It's something that we hope in. It's something that is beneficial for us. There, there is nothing better than this. There, there is nothing better that you will experience in your life than the appearing of the glory of Jesus Christ. He is absolutely perfect and wonderful. There is no experience, there is no uh, wonderful season, there is nothing that we can see or, or enjoy more than the glory of God. He is the pinnacle of existence, the absolute apex of all that is wonderful. And we put our hope in this. It is our blessed hope. Hope isn't just the like, kind of hoping that something will happen, like I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, like we, we're kind of unsure I have a bit of a vague guess. The hope of, when the Bible talks about hope, it, it's like we are hoping for the sun to rise tomorrow. Like it's going to happen whether we're awake for it or not. We're going to wake up, it's probably going to be daylight, and it will have happened before we even think about it. And we should think about this. We should put our hope in Christ's return. Because it's going to include, but not be limited to, the resurrection of our loved ones who have died in Christ. It's going to be the great reunion of those who we miss. Tim Keller's going to be there. Bree's going to be there. My dad's going to be there. It's going to be the end of pain, the end of sores, the end of persecution, the end of cancer, the end of death. It will be the end of tears, the end of darkness, the end of depression, the end of anxiety, the end of all tribulation. But grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing, the absolute apex of that is that we will see Jesus. We'll see him face to face. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. That's what we look forward to. That's what we look forward to.
and until that day, and whether that comes before we die or whether, that, uh, whether we die before that, until that day, we're in this present age where the appearing of grace is in our past and the appearing of glory is still in our future, and these two ages, these two moments are overlapped. We still live in a world that is under the curse of sin. We still live in a world that needs grace, where we still experience pain and loss and heartache and trouble and unmet expectations and death and persecutions and all the rest that life throws at us. And yet we're also experiencing the breaking in of the life to come, with people coming to new life, with miracles and answered prayers and moments where we experience the fullness of our relationship with God. It's not yet fully consummated, but we live in anticipation of that time. And it's this anticipation that is the point. It's why Paul says, while we wait, we live, as it were, as if we're in the waiting room for a doctor's surgery, experiencing the pain of our sin now, and yet anticipating the full healing to come. And friends, we must put our hope in the appearing of the glory of Jesus Christ and the, and the renewal that we'll experience because of him. That will sustain us knowing full well this is what we are waiting for, for Jesus Christ to return. And let's not miss the meaning of this word glory. Glory is a weighty thing that takes our breath away. When I was in Nepal, we, we got up early one morning and we jumped in a bus and drove up this very rickety road to the top of this, what can only be described as a hill compared to the, the mountains around us. And we drove up and then we we climbed hundreds and hundreds of stairs to get to the top of this hill. And it was from this particular vantage point that you can see the sunrise, um, uh, sun rising and and casting the sun's rays onto the Annapurna mountain range. And hundreds of people there gathered to watch the sun rise. And it was kind of like the, you could see the, the sun hitting the, the tops of the mountains until it hit this one particular mountain called uh, Machapuchere, which is the most prominent mountain peak that you can kind of see from there. And, and we, people waited. And, and then as soon as the, the sun started to shine on this particular face, it just went quiet. And people, you could they're like, oh. You could hear their, take, their breath was taken away. Lots of clicks, lots of like, you know, the, of the cameras and all that kind of stuff. People started clapping for this thing that would have happened whether we were watching it or not. That's the glory of God, that, it, that it's, things, it's something that takes our breath away. Anything that makes us feel small, anything that makes us feel insignificant, that takes our breath away. And that's, we're waiting for the appearing of the glory. We're waiting to, to see Jesus and for us to go, wow, I'm so small. Wow, I'm so insignificant. And that's going to be wonderful. That's what we, that's what we want, right? We want the appearing of glory. That's, that's what worship, that's how we are led into worship. We're waiting for that moment. We're waiting for that day. That's what glory means. It's going to be wonderful as we feel just so tiny in front of God. One of my goals every Sunday morning is just to help us feel really small and insignificant in front of God. In the same way that Moses saw just a a crack of the glory of God on Sinai. And he was, the glory of God 
was so radiant and wonderful. And as it reflected off Moses' face, when he went down the mountain again, they said, Moses, you have to put a bag over your head. We can't handle it. It's that wonderful. Or you think of the prophet Isaiah who got, got a glimpse of the glory of God in his throne room. And, and he just gets like the first second and he goes, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. He starts saying, oh, me and the people that are... He starts repenting for his sin and his nation's sin going, Wow, we are so tiny compared to him. Or we think of the apostle Peter and James and John who, who saw Jesus transfigured before them on the Mount of Transfiguration and just absolutely blown away and changed by that. I was reading Second Peter this morning, and he says this, uh, sorry, and uh, yesterday morning, but he says this in Second Peter 1. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter got a glimpse of the glory of God. Everything changed after that. Like he was already following Jesus, but everything was changed after that. And here he is, years, decades later, still writing about that moment. That's the meaning of this word, Glory. When Jesus returns in his glory, no one is going to remain on their feet. Every knee will bow. There are some who are assuming that they're going to get an opportunity, opportunity to interrogate the Son of Man, the Son of God. They've got some questions for him and he's got some explaining to do, they assume. This is utter nonsense. No mouth will dare to open. No tongue will risk the shape of words. We will be in awe as the one to whom the mountains bow returns to his creation. This is the stunning thing about Jesus. Jesus is not just a man with a plan. He is not only the Messiah, the great, the great king. Paul makes a claim that is earth-shattering here. He says, the appearing of the glory, wait for this, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Some people make this some kind of claim that Jesus never claims to be God or that the Bible never really fully claims that he's God. Baloney, he just did there. This man, Jesus Christ, is actually God, the eternal God of the universe, the second person of the divine and holy trinity, inseparable in his being from God the Father and from the Holy Spirit, yet distinct from the Father and from the Spirit in his, in his personhood. He, that one, Jesus will return and we will see his glory. That's what we're waiting for. Friends, put it into your heart and remember it daily. Jesus will one day return. So Paul has been explicit now about the requirements of grace upon our lives, what, what grace does in our lives, that we deny the outworking of sin, we deny godlessness, we, we deny worldly lust, and we instead live in reverent ways, in godly ways, in ways that honor the Lord. And then he says here in verse 14, he makes it clear that adherence to these requirements is not the reason why God loves us. So if you're looking at this and you're thinking, oh man, I've got to be good to get God to love me. I've got to do better to get God to love me. Just, we've just got to read verse 14 because it totally 
rebukes that, totally refutes that. And this is where the gospel just gets wacky. Paul says that he, that's our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. So let's just take that one bite at a time because that's all we can really manage. Firstly, the eternal God of the universe gave. He gave something. Now, he wasn't under any kind of obligation to give anything because he's God. Like on Friday afternoon, um, we got an invitation to go to a kid's birthday party on Friday afternoon. Like it was a very, very short, hey, like, why don't you guys come over for our son's birthday if you, if you can? And so I had the day off and I was like, I quickly ducked down to Bunnings to get some presents because I'm like, just get some presents because that's what you do. You're obligated. You go to a birthday party and you're obligated to bring a present. God is not obligated. God owes nobody anything. And yet he gave. Like, let's just consider that, that he gave. He, doesn't, he didn't need to, but he did. What did he give? Was it a nice gift? Was it a helpful gift? Was it a, a thoughtful gift? Was it an expensive gift? Well, it was all of those things, and it was more. He gave himself. Like God didn't just go, okay, I'll duck down to Bunnings and give them something. God gave himself. Can we let that just disrupt our equilibriums for a moment? God gave himself. The, the fact that God gave anything to anyone is outrageous because he, no, he owes no one, no, he owes nothing to anyone. And then the fact that he gave himself makes this in, incredibly huge. But then it gets wild. Because we've got to ask the question, okay, who is this gift to? Was it to a king or a queen? Was this gift to people who, who everybody knows that person deserves it? Did, was this gift given to someone who could afford it or someone who, somebody who had done enough good in their lives? Was this gift, was this gift of God, was this given to people who knew what to do with such a gift, like they could be trusted with such a gift? No. It was given for us. God gave himself for us. Of all people. Of all people, he gave himself for us. We who are lawless, we who have rebelled against him, we who were once godless and indulged in worldly lusts and continue to do so, he gave himself for us. But why did he give himself for us? Why? Why did he give himself to lawless people? Paul anticipates that question and he answers it. He says it's to redeem us from all lawlessness. To redeem means to release someone from captivity upon a ransom. To, to pay the price required to release that person from captivity. Put it this way, our lawlessness, our sin held us captive. Sin was our captor. And its intent was to destroy us. We are the ones who have been captured by our lawlessness, both in our hearts and in our hands, we walked into that trap. And then Jesus appeared as our hero and he redeemed us. Lawlessness was intent on destroying us but was forced to give us up for the right price. And this is a price that Jesus was all too willing to pay. What was the price? 
of our redemption, it was the blood of Jesus Christ. It was his life, his whole being himself. We cost God everything, and he was pleased to give everything to have us. Why? It was so that, we, that the world would see his glory in his great and unending love for us. And it pleased him to redeem us from the prison of sin. But he didn't just redeem us from the prison of sin, he also redeemed us with a future purpose. Paul says it was to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. This cleansing has the idea of the Old Testament cleansing practices where the priests and anybody who would enter the temple had to, to cleanse themselves from their sin in order to be found right before God. Jesus, Jesus washes us clean. He restores us. He rescues us out of the mud and he cleans us up so that he could have us. We are his possession. It's not just so that we can have him, but it's so that he can have us. You see, God's attitude towards us is not resentment, it's not disdain. That would be just, right? Like if God redeemed us, we might expect him to be like, okay, I've redeemed them, but I'm not too happy with them. I'm pretty frustrated with them, actually. That's what we might expect. And I think for a lot of us, that's where we sit. Like, like we're willing to concede the fact that God gave sent his son, Jesus Christ. Yep, I'm on board with that. I agree with that. And I'm willing to accept that God loves me. We might think kind of love me. He loves us generally in the same way that somebody might say, I love buffet breakfasts. Like, I love all of it. I don't like baked beans, but I love everything else. And we kind of think we're like the baked beans in God's buffet. Like he loves, the, he loves everybody, but he, he's not too, not too crash hot about us. Not too crash hot about me. We might even concede that we're his children, but the kind of children that we feel, we kind of feel like we're in the back of mum and dad's car after they've just picked us up from the police station when we got arrested for shoplifting. Like, yes, I'm still his son. I'm, I'm, yes, I'm still her, her son. I'm, I'm still a child of my parents. I'm, they love me, but right now the words that are coming out of their mouth, are they're saying, what do I do to... To deserve a child like you? What are I to deserve this? How long will I have to put up with you? How long will I continue to have to put up with your nonsense and with your ridiculous behavior? If that's how you think of being a son or a daughter of God, can I just invite you to, to hear this, that you're totally wrong. And the Bible completely disagrees with you about that. You're an heir there. See, the word that Paul uses here is a word that kind of looks like he got it from Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, God had just rescued a nation of slaves called Israel out of captivity in Egypt. And he says to them, you saw what I did to Egypt. You saw what I did to them so that I, that I could have you, so that you could be mine, and you would no longer belong to Egypt anymore, but you would belong to me. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession." Among all peoples, it's the exact same word that Paul uses, the exactly the same word, treasured possession, for all the earth is mine. Friends, we are his treasured possession. Not because we obeyed his voice or kept his covenant, but because Jesus obeyed his voice and established a new covenant for us on our behalf by his blood. That because of Jesus Christ, because he died in our place, 
we can come to God as his treasured possession. I watched a video a week or two ago of a toddler that had fallen down a well, and a toddler survived was okay, but they needed to rescue this toddler, this little boy, out of this well. And the, the well was tiny, very, very small. Um, no, no person could fit down it. They, they couldn't drop a rope down because the toddler couldn't hold onto it and it wasn't safe to do so. And so it was, uh, this is in some, I'm not sure which country, it, they weren't speaking English, it looked like a, an impoverished kind of nation. There was dozens, 30, 40, 50 people around trying to work out what to do and rescuers were trying to work this out. And eventually, um, it was this like 10 or 11-year-old boy who put up his hand and said, I'll go down. And, and so they tied a rope around this boy's waist and they put this boy down head first. He only just squeezed in. They lowered him down. He grabbed hold of the toddler and he pulled him out to safety. Now, there's a whole lot of directions that that illustration could go, but here's where it's going to go. When you were watching that video, you have no idea who the dad is. Yeah, I've got no idea who dad is in this because there's people everywhere. All these people rescue him until the boy is out of the well and then you see who dad is because dad grabs the son. Son's covered in mud, crying, people everywhere. Dad grabs him, just scoops him up, whisks him off and, and, and sits down in the mud holding, weeping over his son, crying that he's got his treasured possession back. Friends, that's what that word treasured possession means. That God didn't save us and he's gone, oh, I wish I'd saved someone else. I probably could have gotten a few more returns from this. No, we are his treasure possession that he rescues us and he wants us. That's the grace of God. And if we, we put that into our hearts, Paul says, that will make us a people who are eager to do good works. Like if we receive that, and we just let our hearts marinate in that, and we just bring that to our mind over and over again, that this is exactly what God has done for us, and there will come a time where we will be completely redeemed from all lawlessness. That makes us a people eager to do good works. It makes us want to obey him. It makes us, it makes us thrilled about obedience towards Jesus. Finally, Paul says something here at the end of chapter 2, then... It echoes something that he, began, he said at the beginning of this chapter. He says, Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. For some of us, or all of us actually, I hope that we have been encouraged. In the truth of the gospel, we are encouraged and we are rebuked, aren't we? We're encouraged to know that God loves us so much that he sent his son to rescue us, but we're rebuked for failing to receive that fully. So be encouraged and be rebuked. And the authority that I have to say that rests on the exact same authority that Titus had too. It's on the authoritative word of God. God loves you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 